Welcome to the Migration Policy Institute. Uh, my name is Jana Batalova, and I'm a senior policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute. And thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning for the webinar called Brain Waste Among Highly Skilled Immigrants in the United States, a Persistent Problem with Increasing Costs. First, a few housekeeping notes. If you have any technical difficulties, uh, please email us at events at migrationpolicy.org or call us at 202-266-1929. We will have a Q&A session at the end of this call. There will be no voice Q&A, but please type any questions that you have uh, into the Q&A box or email us at, again, events at migrationpolicy.org policy.org. All right, welcome. We have a packed agenda, a terrific lineup, lineup of speakers, and many, many people on the call. So I'm super excited, and let's dive in. Faced with a workforce and a society that are aging, there is a great emphasis uh, on rethinking of, of how to create an environment of choice to help Americans, uh, recent high school graduate, college, college graduates, and workers and adults of all ages to obtain a marketable degree and non-degree credential. The, the credentials that will be recognized easily at, uh, by the employers that will help people to land a job that will be well-paying, uh, but also importantly, connect them to lifelong learning opportunities. The other side of, of this coin is, uh, is improving ways to evaluate credentials, skills, and experiences that people already have, have and, and allow for people to use these experiences as a springboard to the next step in their educational and career ladders. The reality is that the United States already has a large reservoir of human capital that is not fully tapped. We find in our research that millions of immigrant and US-born uh, adults, college graduates, uh, who are in jobs that require no more than a high school credential or who are looking for jobs but are unable to find one. This human capital, if well leveraged, could bring important benefits to the US economy, local communities, and of course, to, uh, to workers and their families uh, themselves. So this webinar focuses on findings from a recently released uh, report that my colleague Michael Fix um, and I wrote. The report is called Leaving Money on the Table the persistence of brain waste among college-educated immigrants, and you can find it on MPI's website. And today we have an amazing lineup of speakers, each bring a wealth of knowledge uh, to, to our discussion. They are passionate about what they are doing, and, and they are also thought leaders in their field. We have with us David Kalik, uh, who's the Deputy Director and uh, Director of Immigration Research at uh, the Fiscal Policy uh, Institute. We have Mohammed Khalif, who's um, 
president of Washington Academy of International Medical Graduates. And we have Gina Kraus-Filmar, who is the president and CEO of Operately Global. And uh, the fourth uh, part speaker is uh, Sean Smith, who is a senior vice president and chief human resources officer at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Again, thank you so much for joining and for sh uh, sharing personal, uh, institutional, political, and employer perspectives on the issue of brain waste of college-educated uh, immigrants. So what is brain waste? Uh, I mentioned that term a couple of times already. It's easy to give an example to illustrate uh, this phenomenon. Uh, we've all taken Lyft or, or Uber, or taxis in the pre-Uber days. And um, many of us, I certainly have spoken with a number of drivers finding to my chagrin that they are, uh, they have college degrees. They are engineers, doctors, teachers, lawyers from other countries. And for a variety of reasons, they, uh, after coming to the United States, they end up working in low-skill jobs or unemployed. We estimated that the number of college-educated immigrants who are in similar positions are close to 2 million people. This number is large and is hard to ignore and should, definitely should not be in, ignored. More than one in five of college-educated immigrants in the United States experiences uh, skill underutilization. That uh, uh, phenomenon comes with a heavy price tag. We estimated that the, the lost wages are close to $40 billion annually. And as a result, uh, governments, um, federal, state, and local governments lose close to $10 billion in taxes. The underutilization of immigrant and indeed US-born uh, professionals uh, and, and skills is a phenomenon that comes at a significant cost to individual workers, their families, their communities, and broader society. Helping immigrants succeed after their arrival is not just a matter of helping newcomers uh, and as a welcome gest gesture. No, it's an urgent economic priority. The U.S. faces an estimated shortfall of 8 million workers between now and in, uh, in uh, 2027 amid declining birth rates and an aging workforce. And immigrants and their U.S.-born children are set to be the prime source of uh, wor workers in the United States. Nearly all states experienced rapid growth in the number of college-educated immigrants uh, in the past decade. However, what we found in our research that the underemployment of high, highly skilled immigrants exceeds that of US born in almost all states and with striking, strikingly wide gaps in some of the states that experienced, uh, that have fast growing uh, economies such as Utah and Nevada. Skill underutilization is particularly acute for highly skilled Blacks and Latinos, even if we control for other characteristics. We find that Black immigrants with four-year college degrees 
uh, or higher are 54% more likely than white immigrants to be in work that requires no more than a high school degree. And the likelihood for Latino college-educated immigrants is 40% greater. The gaps importantly persist for the US-born uh, Black and Latina college graduates. And we find that these findings point to uh, uh, highlight, again, the existing patterns of economic inequality and, and offer an important lens to study economic uh, and racial inequality. In addition to race and ethnicity, English proficiency and legal status are strong predictors of brain waste. About 55% of college-educated immigrants with low English proficiency were underemployed compared to 33% of those who speak English uh, well. Unauthorized immigrants and those who are admitted uh, through humanitarian protection channels are also more likely to experience uh, brain waste. Immigrants with degrees in sciences, technologies, um, engineering and math, STEM, uh, as well as those with health degrees are more likely to have good jobs. So that's a good, a good news. The bad news that immigrants with healthcare degrees are still twice as uh, twice more likely to to be underemployed as U.S.-born uh, workers. So even even during uh, the COVID-19 uh, crisis, we found in our research that these job seekers were a sign light. There are other barriers that are hard to measure in population survey data, but we know from vast experiences of organizations such as Upper the Global that works directly with underemployed immigrants. And, and these, uh, the barriers include uh, recent immigrants' lack of um, social and professional networks, employers' bias and uh, uh, discrimination against foreign uh, earned degree, degrees and uh, those candidates with uh, foreign earned uh, experiences. Um, another barrier to good jobs uh, is uh, their interrupted career tra trajectories, uh, returning to gainful employment, uh, even in, 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 a, uh, in the countries where people are born are hard if, if they were uh, uh, breaks in their careers because, for instance, people take time to raise their children. But for, for, for example, for refugees uh, living in the refugee camp or camps for prolonged periods of time, or for the unauthorized who were not able to work legally, these challenges are even greater. Um, difficulties uh, filling gaps in skills or educations uh, is another set of obstacles. Um, uh, we still face a shortage of bridge programs that would uh, allow people to get just the courses uh, that they need instead of restarting their educational and training from the, from the beginning. And finally, um, there are barriers that relate to licensing and regulatory uh, challenges. Uh, requirements, licensing requirements vary across occupations and across states within the same occupation. And it's often difficult to find information. And often it's, it's just uh, the, path, the path to get the license is very long and expensive and 
uh, and, and represents a barrier that we have seen again and again uh, for many workers, uh, professionals, especially those in the medical and healthcare field. So uh, maximizing the opportunities for highly trained immigrants and refugees represents one powerful tool for increasing the pool of skilled workers. Uh, these workers are already here, and, and that's, that's a critical point. There is no need to uh, expand the visas, uh, uh, figure out how to encourage uh, people to come here. They are already here and represent an important pool. And a diverse set of institutions uh, um, could support and is supporting efforts to reduce immigrant underemployment. Uh, this includes immigrant advocacy and rights organizations, refugee resettlement agencies, community colleges, workforce uh, development boards, adult education um, programs, state and local, local governments, licensing boards, funders, and of course, employers and many, many um, representatives of these stakeholders are on the call today, and and including uh, including our speakers. So, with everything I said in mind, uh, I would like to turn the floor to our speakers, who will offer their thoughts, both on the context, but also the imperatives to address brain waste and and give specific examples of solutions that have been now in the field tested of how to reduce. Uh, immigrants uh, skill underutilization. So I will uh, start uh, with uh, David uh, Kalik. Uh, the floor is yours. Thanks, Jana. Um, I'm going to zoom out a little bit and say why I think this research is so important um, uh, and start by just talking a little bit about the long term in the United States, where we see uh, you know, the census data from this year shows us what we what we could see coming already, slowing population growth, right, um, an aging population, so the, the percentage in the labor force is smaller. Um, and among the younger uh, Americans, including immigrants who are coming here, you see much more ethnic and racial diversity um, and many more immigrants in the, in, the, in the younger working age population. So if we are talking about how do we meet the labor force needs of the future, it seems pretty clear that we need to do a better job of making sure that workers reach their full potential so that everybody who's here is, you know, is, is doing as much as they can using their educational uh, training and, and job training to the full capacity. Um, and the, that keeps the economy firing on all cylinders. That's obviously good for the workers themselves, right? They get higher wages and it's good for the, uh, you know, for states and, and uh, localities and the federal government, people pay more taxes as they, as they uh, earn higher wages. It's good for the businesses, right? They're putting people to, you know, they're, they're able to get the labor force that they need. Um, and it's also good for overall productivity in the economy. It's how we're gonna be able to make sure that we are increasing our economic capacity even as the, um, the labor force growth is slowing or even in, some place, in many places in the United States shrinking. Um, so this underutilization of human capital, you know, sort of people who have educational training but aren't able to use it on the job is something that's a real reality across the board. And there's some, there's, there, are, there are ways we can make improvements and should be focusing on that across the board, but it's especially true for immigrants and, uh, and for people of color. 
So we all know the stories. Shauna talked about the cab drivers. Um, I feel like cab drivers are such a cliche. I, I, I think often of the, the food cart owners in our neighborhood, one of whom I talked with and was, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised as you know, an Egyptian guy who's selling uh, bagels and, and coffee to kids at school and, um, you know, and has an engineering degree uh, from Egypt that he hasn't been able to use here. Um, so this, this report shows the extent of the problem and quantifies it in some really smart ways. So congratulations, Shauna and, and Michael. Um, and I, I know you've, you've done this, this work before and this is really kind of uh, bearing the fruit of, of, of a number of years of research. Um, it shows the extent of the problem, but I would say if you turn it around, it also shows the extent of the opportunity. I mean, if you're concerned about what are the labor, you know, how are we gonna meet the labor force needs? Well, here are all these people who have the potential to do much more than they're doing now if we can just make the bridges and um, and figure out how to how to uh, you know how, how to give them the opportunity to step up in ways that will be good for them and also good for all of us. Um, I was particularly struck by some of um, Shana what you pointed out about the, the intersection of race and immigration and the extent to which Black immigrants are clearly the most you know the group where there's the most underutilization of capacity Latinx coming shortly after that, um, immigrants, of course, in general, and many, many uh, US-born people, especially, uh, especially people of color. So that means also, though, that policies that address the differences and figure out how to give people the opportunity to advance are also anti-racist policies. They're policies that will improve equity. So again, it'll be something that benefits the individuals, but also benefits the overall economy. Some of the solutions will require a real effort to rethink how we structure the labor markets and, and job opportunities. Others are tantalizingly easy. Um, so I think you'll hear a little bit from the panelists about some of those. Um, I think you know, the time is really ripe right now. Um, employers are feeling a lot of pressure and there's talk about labor shortages. Um, I will say, I, I, I don't think there's any such thing really as a labor shortage. There's just a labor shortage is just a, um, you know, a moment when the, the economy has not fully reached equilibrium um, and it will. And you'll see, you know, as people, as employers really see that they have labor shortages, they're gonna improve wages, improve working conditions, um, but they're also going to figure out how do they get workers who they maybe weren't looking at before. That might involve adding training. It might include just you know, breaking down some barriers to who do they look to? Are they looking to the refugee resettlement agencies? Are they looking to the, um, the full scope of the labor force that's available? Um, are they disqualifying people for reasons they really don't have to um, if they've been formally incarcerated, if there, are, um, if, there, if there are other barriers that may not be uh, necessary to the job um, uh, that they can remove? Um, and I think, can they do some things like topping off skills? Um, you know, there may be something that's going uh, to help people to improve their English language abilities. Um, some things that may mean a small investment from employers or from, from governments that can make a big difference in the lives of the individual immigrants and in and the productivity and the economy. Um, I think you're going to, maybe I'll, 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 I'll end by, by saying just a little bit about the problems of over-licensing to, to lead into, I think Mohammed Khalif is going to talk about um, ways to solve that challenge. I think we all want to see people licensed and qualified for the jobs that they're doing, but I think we also know that there are opportunities to reduce the um, unnecessary licensing or some barriers to 
uh, people getting into those jobs. So why don't I end with that and, um, and, and leave it for the rest of you to talk about, uh, I think much more of the practical practicalities of how do we address this challenge. Wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, uh, David, for giving us this broad overview and again, reminding us of the uh, imperatives of addressing um, the brain waste for, for college educated immigrants, uh, as well as US born uh, college, uh, college graduates, both as a kind of economic and moral uh, imperative. Um, and yes, you mentioned the uh, over licensing, the fact that it's been uh, the, the number of uh, occupations that require licensing uh, has increased uh, in the past quite drastically and the barriers are mounting. So one, one good example of how um, in the healthcare field, how the, uh, uh, the barriers could be reduced and create and opportunities are created for international trained uh, credentials is the recent law passed in Washington state. And, uh, uh, I will turn the floor to Mohammed from Washington State, who will tell us more about himself as well as um, what his organization has done to make that happen. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate this opportunity. Uh, specifically, want to thank Jana and the Migration Policy Institute for having me today. Um, a quick introduction of myself. Uh, my name is Mohammed Khalif. I am the uh, president and board chair of the Washington Academy for International Medical Graduates. Uh, and this is a Washington State nonprofit that works with specifically immigrant and refugee doctors in professional development. And also we work on policy um, and licensing reform as well. And uh, a, a little bit about my personal story, myself, um, uh, I immigrated to the United States when I was very young, when I was two years old. Uh, my family and I immigrated from Somalia and um, I did until I was 10 years old, uh, my father found a business uh, that required us to travel the world. Um, and this was mostly a cultural business that brought cultural material to the United States so immigrants and refugees could feel more like at home. And um, I was fortunate to live in so many different countries um, and I had the opportunity to pick up uh, multiple languages. Um, and eventually I found myself studying to become a physician in China and um, where I was six, year, six years of my life. Um, I graduated in 2014 and then decided to uh, work in a rural town in Somalia for one year, uh, you know, taking care of very, very sick uh, people there. Um, eventually um, I had to come back to the United States uh, where my family was at the time. Um, and um, I came back and the, the getting back into the labor system was very difficult for me, especially a person um, who, and I could imagine a person who doesn't speak English, right? And um, I spoke English. It was easy for me to at least uh, try to find the resources and get around. Uh, but despite that, uh, the, it was very hard to come back and practice as a physician uh, in the United States. Um, and so I decided to follow the rules. Um, I, I invested around 20 to 30,000 in you know, redoing licensing exams um, and passing all the licensing exams. Um, and you know, despite that, um, I was unsuccessful multiple times in uh, starting a career here. 
And then um, I started to get involved in the community. I was working with multiple nonprofits, you know, talking about the issue of, um, you know, there's 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 this problem that, you know, in that it needs reform. Uh, and many uh, folks, international medical graduates specifically, uh, cannot qualify for license. Um, I started opening a social media channel where then I found almost hundreds and hundreds of uh, immigrant and refugee doctors inside the state of Washington who had the same issue. Um, and from, from multiple different countries, uh, 20 different countries who speak 18 different languages. Um, and you know, just seeing that diversity in the room uh, and seeing uh, folks going through that same issue uh, was really, really, really interesting. Um, and uh, an eye-opening for many of the nonprofits I was working in that time. Uh, and that, uh, and many of the leaders in the state of Washington inspired me to find uh, the Washington Academy for International Medical Graduates, where we um, you know, came together as a community and we said that we, need to, we, need, we needed to do something about this. Um, after that, we started getting into advocacy and speaking with the legislature um, and talking about the issue. Um, specifically, when it comes to physicians, uh, there is the biggest issue is within the federal government uh, because there's a shortage of residency positions. Um, and, um, but also there's an issue with the state government as well when it comes to licensing um, because there's a, there's a strict licensing uh, or unnecessary licensing practices or policies that are misguided. Um, and we started to work from the state level and we started to speak with our legislatures about this, about this issue. And we came across three different uh, problems when we were trying to pass this law. Um, one was the lack of education um, when it, came to, when it comes to this issue specifically uh, amongst legislatures. You know, many legislatures thought that maybe there was no way to test immigrant and refugee doctors. Um, many folks did not know the issue that there was uh, steps required after medical school for immigrant and refugee doctors specifically and all international medical graduates. Um, and, and many just believed that uh, it wasn't the state's job to do these kind of stuff. And this was a more like a, a national effort that needed to be done by the federal government. So it, it was a challenge when it came to educating state legislatures. And on the other side, the second challenge, the second hurdle that we came across was uh, professional interest groups, right? You had uh, professional associations and interest groups that maybe saw licensing immigrant uh, doctors and refugee doctors as a threat uh, to job security uh, and other reasons as well. Um, and you also had, on the same time, you also had bigotry on one side playing a role uh, and racism playing a role as well, where uh, some folks did, did not welcome the idea of these kind of policies being enacted. Um, and um, it took us four years to uh, and get get uh, our latest bill, licensing bill passed, uh, Senate and uh, House Bill 1129, and um, this came after years of you know getting the word out um, and uh, organizing the, the community. Even though the Washington Academy for International Medical Graduates was um, 
and working on this a lot, there was a lot of people behind the scenes, uh, you know, nonprofits in Washington states, individuals, local and city officials who were, you know, really pushing this forward as well. So this was, you know, a, a community effort uh, that uh, helped, helped give this pass. And um, the reason why we chose this license, specifically the uh, limited uh, license for international medical graduates is because we saw how the different, the different other policies played out in uh, different states. For example, during the pandemic, we had you know, executive orders passed and uh, we had different governors pass executive orders that weren't utilized and uh, that weren't implemented appropriately. Um, and some of the issues with those were there was no liability protection. Um, there was no way that you could get um, uh, uh, insurance, malpractice insurance uh, for, for these kind of executive orders. And also there was no CMS code uh, when it comes to billing Medicaid and Medicare, um, you know, for this, there was no taxonomies for these executive orders. So it was, there was a lot of difficulty when it came to making those policies happen. Um, and we believe this license in Washington state will overcome that and will, um, will make it easier for immigrant and refugee doctors uh, to practice, practice in the state uh, and take care of uh, folks. And um, so that was that was the that was the main hurdle when it when it comes when it comes to when it comes to uh, licensing and, and I think to replicate this throughout the state there needs to be um, getting the numbers because we were really amazed when we saw that the state legislature legislature was really amazed when they saw hundreds and hundreds of doctors uh, in front of their eyes right <laughs> it wasn't like they heard about it and we're, we're telling them and people were there uh, you know in the state capitol talking to folks. Uh, you know, and, and getting, getting, getting to know folks. Um, so that was three years. And what really, you know, COVID really sh sh showed everybody that, you know, the system, the healthcare system is not safe, specifically for minorities and underserved communities. Um, in our state, uh, Latinos were three times likely to die from COVID uh, than, than, than white populations. Um, Pacific Islanders and Black were eight to five times more likely to be hospitalized uh, with severe diseases. And uh, that, that showed us that there's a need for a diverse workforce. Um, and um, that, that helped us really uh, get this legislation packed, passed when people really saw the impact of uh, bad licensing and less healthcare professionals. Um, we also had huge bipartisanship when it comes to uh, when it came to passing this uh, legislation in the house alone uh, we had 9043 uh, only three legislatures uh, did not vote for this license 98% um, of the republican party in the house uh, voted for it all of the democratic party voted for it uh, and you know, when when you when you when we spoke with the different policymakers and we educated them about, hey, this is not like as John has said, we're not bringing folks. You know, there's a lot of fear uh, from some legislatures that, hey, we're 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 bringing a lot of folks into the United States, and you know, jobs will be taken away. And and we're like, these are people already in the neighborhood, right? These are you know them. These are like your local 
your taxi drivers, your folks, you know, working in schools and giving out bagels. Uh, and uh, that kind of changed the narrative when, when people saw the, the effect of it. Um, and right now we're working on implementation of this licensure and we're gonna have uh, different employers. We're gonna be having a job fair to introduce this. Uh, we're already having many calls from employers who wanna utilize uh, this license. So we're really excited um, on where the future will lead us. Uh, so thank you so much for giving me the opportunity and I'll pass it back to Jana. Thank you, thank you, Mohammed. Really uh, powerful, both personal and uh, institutional story, and really highlight the um, the the power of education, a uh, power of educating uh, key stakeholders. Uh, what was so striking of what you said is that you found that uh, state legislators were not aware of this population, uh, thought that, well, are we talking about importing people and that might mean uh, job competition, uh, but also not understanding the um, that there are many technical barriers. Uh, in principle, it sounds great, but once you get to it, and really the example of the executive orders passed in the wake of the pandemic showed us is that where they got stalled and, and is 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 in those uh, technical uh, details. So really wonderful and congratulations again on uh, making that happen and uh, hopefully they, that will become uh, an important uh, model uh, to replicate throughout the country. And I'm going to turn the floor uh, to Gina, who will talk again about the opportunities that uh, uh, the pandemic created for the field of uh, professional immigrant integration, and talk about another very powerful and unique example of a private-public partnership uh, aimed to address uh, a skill underemployment of college-educated immigrants. Gina. Thank you, Jana. Um, and so great to be coming off the heels of Mohammed's story because it fits in so nicely. I think, um, you know, one of the opportunities we saw in the pandemic was this conversation around health equity and health equity in communities of color and in immigrant communities because of the statistics that Mohammed was highlighting around the impact of COVID in these communities. And what it did was it created a moment to really reflect on how are we tapping into some of this untapped talent that you highlighted in, in the research so that they are filling these roles and they're filling these roles around vaccination response, around COVID, um, around contact tracing, et cetera, filling roles that really allow the communities, immigrant communities to see themselves um, in these spaces. And so I think the health equity piece is a real opportunity. Um, I also think, and Sean will talk about this, it was a real pain point around talent needs. And that pain point wasn't just in the healthcare sector, that pain point was really in a number of mid and high skill jobs. So what we saw in the pandemic was this huge push towards digital transformation across industries, which really opened up a huge bigger demands around the technology and the technology expertise that industries needed, including in healthcare. Um, and so we saw mid and high skill jobs actually available under the pandemic, and we still see those jobs open. So when we did our research up with the global, we work in um, six core markets, 
And in those core markets, we saw during the pandemic, 2.5 million job openings in mid and high skill roles that our direct community would be able to be eligible for and to fill, right? That's 2.5 plus million jobs. And we know there's only 2 million of our population here. So there, there is this narrative around, it's not a competition with other communities. It's how does this community help solve for some of the challenge we have in terms of just talent gaps in the country, it moving now and, and into our economic future. Um, so that was really the opportunity that we saw. And I will say the racial justice movement in this country has really been a huge uh, part of that. How are we imagining and rethinking what diversity and inclusion looks like and allowing employers to start thinking about how do we create access and opportunities. So you talked about bridging programs, um, apprenticeship programs, um, and thinking about those programs, not only on the entry level, but in the mid and the high skill roles, which is what we really end up with with global push for, because that's where our communities can um, benefit from um, in terms of entry points at those levels. So the people we serve there, we serve about 2000 people a year. Um, we've heard stories like Mohammed's from, from like Mohammed from like over 19,000 people at this point. 73% of the people we serve are people of color and 48% are women. And that feels kind of meaningful given the NPI research that you mentioned around, we know these two sort of intersections within our community have the lowest economic outcomes. Um, some of the, the missed opportunities I think I wanna to touch on. Um, so we saw like there was this moment, there was a real opportunity. A missed opportunity I think is something what Mohammed was touching on, which is we saw several states open up temporary licenses to doctors and nurses. And the largest pipeline of folks that got temporary licenses were in the state of New Jersey. And that was remarkable in and of itself. The challenge was in some ways that the, that the bottleneck issue that Mohammed mentioned, right? But also the, the demand side, how do we make sure this matches up with employers? Um, the reason that's important is because from our experience, there are recruiting and hiring barriers for these communities. Um, we talked about sort of, uh, you know, the career trajectories, interrupted career trajectories that you mentioned, but interrupted career trajectories are also, we have people in this country who are homeless, and or who are doing transitional jobs like the Uber driver or rideshare driver, um, and they have gaps in their CV, right? From their professional career trajectory. So how do we think about and um, reimagine how we value that experience and how we value the professional experience people bring from their home countries? Um, but how are we also thinking about bringing the employer stakeholders along in this process. So the legislators, yes, but also the employers. Um, one of the biggest questions we get from our employers are, are these people work authorized, right? There's a lot of confusion about what work authorization looks like. Whether you're working, trying to get a job in technology or you're trying to get a job in healthcare or trying to get a job in finance. Um, there's a lot of myths and um, lack of clarity that needs to be clarified. And as we start pushing forth things like what Mohammed and his team are doing in Washington state, there's a real need to make sure that we're bringing employers along at the same time. So I think for us, one of the biggest pieces we really believe in is, is we need policy employers and nonprofits to really work closely um, as a community to tackle this together 
um, because we know to address the bottleneck issue Mohammed was talking about, you need people from the community to help inform the policies, right? But we also need employers to be talking about what does demand look like? What are their expectations and what part and role can they be playing in a really positive way? Um, I will just give one story of, of a job seeker, which sort of um, helps imagine what Mohammed was talking about, very similar. We have a internationally trained medical professional from Haiti. He's an Isaili. He's homeless living in New York with his wife and his three-year-old daughter. And for him, the idea of having to spend $2,000 to take step one and step two of the USMLE to relicense is cost prohibitive, right? For him, he needs to put food on the table now. So he's trying to um, study and do the licensing, uh, to do the relicensing just for the tests, pay for the tests, and put food on the table so he can get out of the homeless shelter. Um, these are all aspects that our communities can face when trying to get back into their professional careers. And this is also some a, a, an ingredient that we need to think about if we really want to help support this community back. Um, so with that, I will just hand it off to, well, I'll hand it off to Jana to allow Sean to really talk about this partnership that we've developed with New York Presbyterian Hospital, which really allows for our internationally trained professionals, some medical, some in IT, some in administration to, to help address some of the pain points around vaccination response and the pain points around um, just generally around the, the healthcare infrastructure needs for New York Presbyterian and use it as an entry point. So we have a three month internship, um, which is work, work experience, which is fully paid, that allows our people to get in through the door in order to then um, have a navigation to longer term positions at New York Presbyterian. Um, I will just say we need real champions who come with the heart and the capability like Sean does that really open these doors and being open to reimagining how do we think about talent and how do we integrate that into the systems and structures we already have as HR. Uh, thank you, Gina. Thank you. Um, what was so striking in what you said to me was the the, the reminder that um, the the road to 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 re to finding the, the job that is consistent with your qualification could be very long and often expensive. So uh, having the, it's not only enough to have the opportunity to, to practice, but it, it has to come with the uh, support while you are uh, investing into your education. Uh, so people can, don't have to worry about uh, uh, feeding their families because they will, that internship is paid um, and, and at the same time they acquire the, uh, the experience, at the same time they build professional networks, and at the same time the, the other side, in the case uh, what you mentioned, the employers, they get to know that person on a personal level and and, and build uh, connections, uh, powerful personal connections and become champions through the personal involvement uh, uh, as well. And the other point that I would like to highlight is feels like now also the, the, the time of when uh, there is a convergence of several powerful uh, mega trends. One is what David mentioned, the demographics and labor force uh, uh, and, and the other one 
uh, I think both all of you mentioned the uh, health uh, inequity imperative, but also the racial addressing these uh, long-standing racial uh, inequalities. So, um, well, with with the, this in mind, let's hear from Sean. It's very excited to hear also about uh, this issue from the employer's perspective. Sean. Thank you. Let me let me just first say I'm I'm, I'm actually overwhelmed with uh, a lot of the comments so far, and I have to say, Dr. Khalif, yours really puts it in extreme perspective, um, and reminds me a lot about my own life. I'm an immigrant also, and uh, my parents obviously were first, or not obviously, but they were first. And I was three years old, and then I went back and came back when I was about 17. And, and, I, and one of the reasons why I had to leave and come back is my parents need to adjust to this new life. Um, this life that was so different than the one that we had, uh, the middle class life that we had, uh, and the reality that my mother had to actually on weekends take another job in order to take care of someone, something she'd never done in her entire life. She was a school teacher, my father, um, was a, a government employee, very successful, and he decided to go back because he couldn't make a path forward here. My mother, on the other hand, got into real estate, thankfully, and really, really loved it. So I, I think my general orientation and my role as the head of HR, um, you know, for an organization that's 48,000 people is to ensure that um, people can realize their passions, their dreams, that's how I've looked at my own career. And I, I have to say, when we met Gina, it was a gift. I, I, I do uh, owe it to one of our trustees, um, Russ Carson, who really, I think, when we think about the commitment and the connections to how we sort of connect to outside bodies, our trustees are extraordinarily helpful there. Um, but we've been on this journey as an anchor institution. I hope you all have heard that uh, term before, but it's really the realization that um, organizations, large organizations, have a responsibility to communities that go beyond the service that they provide. Uh, one of those is the reality that uh, you know livelihoods come from jobs. Health insurance comes from jobs. So when people are talking about health equity, you know part of the the, the sad news there is uh, you need a job to get good insurance, or hopefully you can afford to buy one on the exchange. But you can't do that if you don't have a livelihood. And so a lot of our programs have been really centered around what do we need to think about as well when we're recruiting, because we need to recruit people that look like the people in the community that we're serving. Our executives as well, in terms of our goals, is to try to transcend and get beyond that. And we've been experimenting in a number of different ways. Um, Gina talked about digital transformation. We're on that journey too, right? And you know, all that really means in the end is I used to do it on paper. Now I use it in some different way. And people need to be skilled for that. I mean, we think about our workforce in that sense that uh, it is incumbent on us to provide uh, the level of exposure that they need to be able to do their jobs. And that concept can simply be applied to the outside in the same way. And, and you know, as we take this journey, there are a number of commitments even beyond uh, the work with Upwardly Mobile. Um, I'll talk about the CEO Jobs Council. We uh, have agreed that we wanna hire 100,000 New Yorkers, change their experience, their lives, their livelihoods around income 
And 27 brave CEOs came together and said, let's do that. But to transform, um, you know, not just in policy, which, you know, I'm hearing a lot today, but even how does one get into one career? And, you know, the barriers that exist, um, you, know, you know, can also be some, one of the things that actually disillusions people, makes people give up. Um, we're clearly talking about what happens as it relates to just, you know, you know Muhammad's example and the ones that Gina mentioned. Um, but there are a lot of stories of people who, um, you know, just can't even navigate the process. They're, they've not arrived to the process state yet. Um, when you arrive here and you're trying to figure out even how their tax system works, it's, 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 it's completely foreign in the true sense of the word and finding ways of doing that uh, comprehensively becomes important. So we do a number of things that I'm not gonna talk about today. I'm gonna talk about Upwardly Mobile to say, it just makes sense. Um, through the pandemic, we needed in wave one, New York, if you remember was ground zero, um, we needed about, 4,000 people to fill our gaps. And at any given point through those months, 3,000, 3,500 people were out with COVID or COVID symptoms, which means we are taking care of mass population and not the right people in-house. And as Gina talked about vaccinations, um, wow, how huge was that? But now your healthcare workers who are taxed every day are now being asked to give vaccines to the world. And when this started, we didn't know how we were gonna get shots in arms. It was important for us to get uh, identify partners in a number of different ways. And I wanna be thankful to the city too, because they opened forums for volunteers. I think what Gina is describing is a partnership that frankly just makes sense. Wherever we can create pipeline opportunities, that's been our focus, right? If, if, if I think about my own career, there were moments when I had to switch lanes and go in the slow lane and switch it around and go in a new direction, right? And, you know, you know, I didn't finish my degree till I was 25 in my undergrad and I didn't finish law school till I was 31 years old. So I, I think life gives us all kinds of different fruit. We as employers have a responsibility to figure out how to connect that fruit. And through partners um, like Gina, and, you know, Gina mentioned this, policy, employers, advocates need to get together differently and better to be able to move this agenda forward. There are things I don't know as employers, as an employer, there are things that I will never be able to influence and I have to use the preponderance of what's given. So again, when we have a partner like Gina who can help with onboarding, help with prep, help us and advise us on what we should think about, um, it does make a difference. We did use the EO, I'm happy to say that, um, and as you use that, EO, uh, Gina talked about experience, right? So, so what happens when uh, someone looks at a resume, they go, okay, great, I wanna use this person, but they don't have any experience or their experience was years ago. So this internships for us is really designed to open the door um, to try to make a match to people's passion. It may be on the first attempt, it may be on the second attempt, meaning maybe you're taking a job, but your path is to proceed to something else. But the core is to finding good jobs, good paying jobs, jobs that are more aligned with what that person's interest is. And that through the internships, not only do they get to know us, because we don't dare to assume that um, we're the only gig in town, right? We want to provide experience, but it goes beyond that. If we don't hire you, 
it's to provide experience that somebody will. So we've committed to Upwardly Global to take on a hundred interns. And uh, what I'm certainly um, uh, committed to is going beyond the hundred interns, um, you know, because I think this is a program that you don't stop, um, you continue that in fact, the vaccines gave us an opportunity, our reopening is giving us an opportunity. And you're all seeing, I'm sure, some of the same stats that I'm reading. People are leaving healthcare. I'm, I'm thankful they're not leaving NYP just yet, but I, I'm seeing slight upticks. And I think it's something we should be concerned about. Certainly as we think about the aging population, then the availability of people who are extraordinary is not as easy it was never easy, David, because you know, I, I guess I've used the labor shortage word. I will never use that word again, by the way. Um, but it's never easy. And so to open up a new avenue or avenues, period, because I'm also as interested in people with disabilities as I am people who are immigrants, because our commitment is to create an environment where our employees feel like they belong, where our patients feel like they belong. And in order to do that, you need people who can contribute at the table that's going to change or influence all of our workflow processes. So with that commitment, I'm measuring in almost any instances, how are we doing? Who's coming in? Is it diverse enough? Is it not diverse enough? Are we focused in the right segments, including incarceration, by the way? Um, because you know when you think about all the related elements to one who ends up in, um, in, in, in some type of housing crisis or um, one who is never able to sustain themselves, then I hate to say it, but there are other things that go with that, including being in the wrong place at the wrong time, um, including experiencing bias. I, I, I'm not suggesting police are biased, but I'm suggesting that there are biased people everywhere and that in fact, um, that creates different circumstances around life. And I appreciate that. I think our goal here as we do this, expose people, expose them to new careers, new opportunities, a great place to work and hire them. And so as we look at this, the true test is, are we hiring you um, or are you hired somewhere else because of the internship that you uh, took with New York Presbyterian? But these are real need-based jobs. These aren't made up jobs. These are jobs that we need. We have 1900 positions that we're recruiting for um, at any given time about 4,000 people a year, every year, every one of those presents an opportunity to identify uh, someone, um, you know, to add to our focus from a diversity perspective. And diversity and from a mental state too is really critical and important. I learned today. Um, I also learned the concept of brain waste, which until I was preparing for this, um, you know, I must admit, I didn't know what that was. And it makes me wonder as an employer, am I challenging myself enough? I think what we would ask for um, is the pathway. We, we can't create the pathway, but we can certainly assist with the pathway. And when we think about shortages, um, we have mass shortages. You're reading the same stats. By 2030, we're gonna have a pretty significant gap, but that gap is now. We have roles across the board, physical therapy, medical technologists, right? I don't know if anybody knows what that is. Um, I, I, I know our doctors know what that is, but you don't wanna be in a hospital without a medical technologist, right? And other countries have medical technologists. 
New York State's prohibitive requirement has created such a barrier that we can't even hire people from out of state, much less people who are immigrants. So the policy pieces where we could help, we'd want to, um, to champion things where there would be change. Um, we try to do that today in many different ways. Um, one of the things that uh, we're all talking about in New York right now is the potential that maybe the requirements could change in a way that it reduces and we can go out, we can go to other countries to recruit as well. That gets to Gina's comment on uh, you know, immigration uh, you know, papers, right? Specific H-1Bs and whether that would be granted or not. And policy-wise, as we all know, that had been restricted over the last few years. So Gene, I guess I understand why people ask about it. What I don't understand is the acknowledgement of people who have moved here or continuing their lives, who have all of the required immigrant um, uh, paperwork, um, green card that I had in the uh, subsequent naturalization process that allows people to live the life that they dream to live. So I think it's an obligation for, for entities to think, um, certainly the diversity, um, inclusion, belonging approaches by many uh, means that we need to think about this very differently. And that barriers that we've seen, not only here, um, we've seen barriers in incarcerated individuals. Um, I'm happy that uh, laws are taking care of that. Now I don't have to look at whether or not you've been incarcerated before I interview you because it truly doesn't always matter, right? Um, as the first thing that we look at. And I would argue the first thing that we shouldn't look at is where you came from, right? And that all the other elements of, can you get into an organization that sponsors you or gives you a livelihood that you can pay those fees to get on a journey and then what? Will that same organization recognize the fact that you've completed your journey and you now want to get to your field of choice. That's a goal of New York Presbyterian um, as we think broadly around talent and talent management. Um, and I'm sure we all know there are no primary care providers. They don't exist. Um, there are not enough of them to feed all the needs of the United States to, to influence health equity, right? And so it's, it, it was a travesty for me to know that there's so many more qualified healthcare professionals that are not at work. And we should be concerned about that. Um, and we could, should be concerned in the same way with IT, which does not require in many instances a degree. I think we're seeing an evolution there that should make some things easier in terms of the barriers that people face. Um, not that it's a degree or not imperative, but that we challenge ourselves as well. Are degrees really necessary in all instances where people could learn on the job or when people are bringing skill sets that you could train beyond? We're doing that with our employees. We're doing Python training, AI basics, because every job is gonna need that, right? And so these skill sets are things that people then can leverage back into the workforce um, and makes them even more competitive. And I dare say, finally, the ability for an employer to be able to interface with people that wanna move their careers. If you're an immigrant, I think back to my mother, she didn't have that avenue. Thank God I had an uncle who knew somebody to hire her. But in the end, she had to find 
the difficult path, um, leaving that organization, going to multiple others before she found something that she loved because she'd never be a school teacher here. And I think that's sad. She was a terrific science teacher. She wanted to be a doctor because of her. Um, clearly I'm not, I changed my mind, but that's because I didn't have the brain power that Dr. Khalif has. I think we should all though think broader as employers, what is our responsibility to communities and our communities include immigrants? Thank you to John. So if I could just jump in for a second. Yeah. So I'm, not actually, I'm not actually a doctor, but, um, uh, but I, um, you know, what you're saying also reminds me that it's not just the workforce side, but also the relationship to the communities. And a lot of the time what we talk about in this arena, me too, is how are we meeting the needs of the employers and able to, you know, get people into the jobs that they want to get into. But I've heard this over and over again, that especially in healthcare, actually, maybe that it helps for people, for the for employers to be able to reach a community if they have people who speak the different languages, who are represented diverse, you know, uh, maybe not, even if they're not from the same communities as the people who are coming in, if there's diversity among the staff, it looks different than if there's not. Um, and also, you know, we found this in a report about employers of refugees, it makes managers better managers when they have to deal with the kinds of, of questions that come up when you have you have to think again about well, you know, is it really necessary that this person has this degree, or is it is it really just a question of you know whether they have the right skills? Does it really matter if they you know go down the list? So um, I just want to say that I think it's um, and I can only imagine that that was that the studies that we've done around that were before the pandemic. I can only imagine that in getting vaccines to people, having a group of, of staff that represents something that looks like the people who you're trying to give vaccines to has got to be a huge advantage. Absolutely, David. Look, I, I would say, you know, veterinarians could give vaccines in New York, right? I mean, I think it's really the expansion and yet, um, you know, I don't think we drew enough from the immigrant population in uh, that sense. Um, uh, but yeah, livelihood is the life. We spend most of our time at work and I think it's important to recognize the community impact in all of that. And one thing I really like uh, uh, in your comments, Sean, is that Everybody has a path, right? But you need a door, the first step, you need one opportunity to get you to somewhere. Like as you know, Gina said um, about the, that doctor that was, in, that was not able to pay for the USMLE. And I think what you're doing is amazing. Um, and I just wanted to you know, thank you for, your, for, for really giving back to the community and uh, working with Upward to Global on this, uh, this program. Thank you very much. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, I like the, the, the how, um, you know, one, one person said one thing and then it sparks your part of your brain connecting to, to your work, uh, other work. Excellent. Really, what, what, what was so striking to me in Sean's presentation, and we will last to chew on uh, there, but the, the, import, the, the importance uh, of employers as uh, community members. They are uh, as if they if they see themselves as an anchor institution. Uh, they see themselves also as having certain responsibilities to participate in in the community to address uh, key social uh, issues. So that's that's a critical um, uh, aspect, and and hopefully we do see a trend, and the trend will continue that employers, bigger and smaller employers, will step even more uh, in, into the, the, the fray and dressing the, the, these 
difficult social issues, but not impossible as the, the examples of Washington State and, and the, uh, uh, the New York Presbyterian internship uh, suggests. And what was uh, also an interesting point that I'd like to highlight is that uh, these have paid internships and they also get people in the door so they can learn about how things are done in the United States, but also their managers can learn about, about them. Um, uh, terrific. Well, thank you so much. We have a number of questions, uh, which I'm going to read. Um, and, uh, and then if we don't get to some of the answers, uh, maybe we can, I can pass these specifically to, to the participants. Um, one, one question we had was, um, how can we work with all stakeholders uh, to move to authentic development for individuals and communities? Employment is one piece uh, with other education, but there are also education and other components. Um, what are your thoughts on kind of how do we bring together the, the, the different stakeholders to move uh, the ball forward? Maybe Gina, since you are, uh, well, and also Mohammed, since you are part of uh, Imprint as well, um, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, uh, your experience uh, of working in Imprint and making making the difference. Yeah, so I, I would say, so Imprint is a coalition of organizations that are committed to helping um, highly skilled immigrants integrate um, in the US and um, specifically in the economy. Um, and so we've done, I think, a lot of work in Imprint on the interna uh, internationally medical um, graduates, internationally trained medical graduates um, during the pandemic. Um, but it really brings together organizations like us who work with direct, direct service with the community and with employers, um, folks like Mohammed around the country who are trying to push policy, um, refugee resettlement organizations that are also trying to get the internationally trained refugee medical professionals into the mix. Um, but I do think there's an opportunity. I mean, like, there are a lot of stakeholders, right? Like you mentioned education, like residency programs. I think Mohammed, you mentioned them too. Like there's a real opportunity for us to be opening up residencies, for example, and thinking about how we open up residencies. How do we connect this conversation with sort of the, the gap also in rural areas around healthcare infrastructure, right? And there are a lot of conversations going on in terms of at the policy level as well among in states um, about what that would look like. So I think there are a lot of dots to connect. I think there are new stakeholders that we need to be bringing into the table more intentionally um, as we think about sort of how do we move the gap. Um, I will say, you know, one of the things we did, we have pushed in terms of legislation on the federal level um, is for a study to be conducted around the barriers that internationally trained professionals face in terms of integrating in the US and then how we owe a funding or, or you know, um, government funding could help streamline and support those specific initiatives. Um, so there's a lot moving, I will say, but this is a community, this is a highly invisibilized community, right? It's very hard when you think about poverty to think about um, educated, the educated poor, right? It's very hard when you think about immigrant integration to really focus on workforce integration that moves away from rapid attachment jobs. Um, and so in this case, what MPI is doing is really pushing forward a very new conversation. Um, it's been around for a while. MPI had an older report, um, but 
really the movement has been has been growing, I would say, in the past 10 years. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that. Um, I think that's really important when it comes to uh, you know bringing stakeholders together is uh, try to find common ground, right? Try to understand what the concerns of employers are. Uh, I remember um, I was with a friend and I met with the residency program director uh, at the Swedish hospital in downtown Seattle. Um, and he was talking about some of his concern. He was like, well, what about liability? And um, and what about these skills and those skills and you know, using the electronic medical system and dealing with insurance companies and pre-authorizations and uh, you know, all those kind of uh, technical aspects. And the question that we asked him was, hey, can, can these things be taught, right? If you wanted to admit these and, uh, qualified individuals, can we create a program that, uh, that brings them in? Maybe like, what is Sean doing? Uh, like for the example that Sean is doing, um, three months internship or four months internship that can help them navigate through these process so they can be, uh, so they can meet the needs of those employers. Uh, and, and his answer was yes. And we worked on together, we worked with each other on policy and uh, trying to get some of these things done in Washington state as well. So I think we can, we can utilize the partnerships of folks like an imprint. Um, and I plan to definitely call Sean when I'm speaking with the hospitals in Seattle and you know, pointing to New York Presbyterian saying, hey, look what they're doing and uh, invite you know, uh, key players to present on these programs. Because I think employers have peers too, right? Uh, and head of HR in Seattle will be more keen to listen to Sean than than me, right? So I think listening to bringing folks together is, is really important as well. So I just wanted to add that. Thank you, thank you both. So some of, a number of the questions mentioned, uh, want to know more and figure out how to connect with organizations that are doing he, uh, doing in the field. I already posted, uh, I already sent the links to uh, Upper the Global and and uh, Washington Academy for IMGs. And here is the link to the uh, imprint uh, uh, immigrant professional uh, that, that which is a network of uh, organizations that work on immigrant professional integration. So uh, lots of resources there. Uh, please, please stay in touch because that's how we grow the field and contribute from different angles. Um, the question I'd like to ask is was addressed to to Sean, and you know, worth reiterating again. So, how do we make the connections with hospitals uh, and employers like you? How do we clone you and and uh, projects like the internship that you have uh, in in other hospitals across the country as well as other fields? Like, what are the lessons? What are the uh, elements that that uh, need to be there to to get employees on board to help addressing their their pain points. Thank you, John. Uh, let me just say, most employers are going through this journey in diversity, right? And 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 I, I'm I'm sure if I poll everybody who's worked for 20 years, you'd say your organization's been talking about it for 20 years, right? I, I think it's really then delivering practical solutions and getting to either the heads of recruiting or the CHROs, right? I, I think this is, to me, a simple approach if we can package it right. Could everybody pay an intern? 
I don't know, probably not. However, could everybody do some type of exercise, even if it's mentorship or networking? We've worked with programs where we've said, we can't devote that attention, but we can have forums where people are now connecting with our experts inside, where people can come in for tours. So think about um, different ways, low bar ways that would be easy for employers to do to the highest degree that you could possible do, but it's really a conversation. And, and, and I do have to say for me, while I was interested in this topic, my meeting with Gina and Rebecca really helped to solidify that it actually aligns well with our mission. There are many organizations who um, claim to do some of this and few who do it well. And so finding the right partner for us was really important. I think I've recognized that Gina's that Upward to Go was gonna be a great partner in this because they shared the passion that I have. Um, I also wanna comment on what Mohammed said because in the move of employers across every industry, peer groups influence each other. I wanna be on the best place to work list, so do they. Um, what innovative practice do you have? Great, we wanna hear it. How'd you manage through the COVID pandemic? We all spend time on these forums, I'm on two forums a week with only CHROs talking about New York or talking about something across the country. So I think it's a matter of delivering the right information at the right time and certainly leveraging champions that are gonna open the door. Because uh, Mohammed's right. Um, you know, If I hear something in Washington, I'm calling a colleague in Washington and saying, tell me about that. In the same way that we're now talking about physician burnout with actual hospitals in Seattle, Washington. So as you do these things, um, employers being fed is really connecting to what the employer's needs are. Um, what do they need to accomplish? Making their lives easy, if you can, because it's hard enough. Um, delivering a solution that's going to change what, you know, those in my seat, I'm accountable to a board and I'm flashing numbers and I'm saying here is the diversity metric. And here's how we're partnering with the community. So appealing to that, ensuring that people can feel connected with their work, with this work. But I think a big part of this is education and the education, um, and because I've felt the way I have about incarceration for a very long time, and because I feel the way about, about immigration for a very long time, then you probably don't need to talk to me more than once. But for someone who is unsure, Mohammed talked about that, your average leader is thinking, I'm gonna get sued. Um, you're untested, find me the perfect candidate, right? That's what we get. You know, they have to have these 10 things and 20 years of experience, right? And we go, do you need 20? Or can you use two, right? And, and you start that process by educating one leader at a time. So I think it starts with here. Um, I'm gonna be asking Gina, Gina doesn't know this yet, publicly to actually join us in what we call a Dialogues in Diversity, where we're talking about what we're doing and influencing the hearts and minds of leaders, the decision makers. Because Gina can talk to me, I'm not making the decision. I have a lot of influence, but we need to get our decision makers there. And I shared with Gina as we were talking about this, that I was presenting a week ago or two weeks ago, um, you know, really to change that internally, because we've got to do a lot of change management and change how people receive 
candidates and how they see candidates more optimally than perhaps they see them today. And that's the education. Remember in our workforce, any workforce, your percentage of leaders include a diverse mix of people that were there when the doors were fully shut, that were open to it at some point that might be immigrants themselves that understand the plight, but who are oriented to the way we do things. So it's the way we do things that we need to influence to change. Thanks, Sean. Thank you, thank you. I see that uh, Gina uh, would like to say a few words and then we're gonna wrap up because we're two minutes above uh, the end time. Yeah, so I would just say um, to, to, to to provide some color to everything Sean was saying, which is it takes a lot of hard work from a, an employer side, right? It takes like working with recruiters and hiring managers. It takes bringing a talent pipeline as well. So as an organization, like if an employer has a talent need, it's also bringing a pipeline that's going to be ready to take on those talent needs and be competitive for them, right? So it, it's, um, it's a journey that takes time and effort from both sides. And it's absolutely worth it when we create these models. I will also say um, the other thing is, is we will and hopefully, and Sean, I didn't tell you this yet, start creating a, a case model of this as an example so that the field can learn from it and do exactly what we want it to do, which is Mohammed, to your point, we want other hospitals to replicate this, right? We want to say like, hey, there is a model out there and it's addressing needs and you've got a pipeline of people in your, in your city and you've got an organization like um, yours that can be supporting this. And why aren't you doing what New York is doing? Um, so that, that's upcoming, hopefully. Wonderful. Well, thank you so, so much everyone for joining us. Um, we, I apologize that we didn't answer all of the questions, but uh, we see it as a continuation of a dialogue and discussion, not the, the, the end point. So please stay in touch. Um, uh, the audio will be available uh, tomorrow. This webinar is recorded and will be available uh, to, uh, on, on the MPIS website uh, tomorrow. Uh, just to remind you, check out our new report uh, called Leaving Money on the Table, the Persistence of Brain Waste Among College-Educated Immigrants. It's on the website. I would like to uh, uh, thank uh, Lumina Foundation for supporting this work and the Open Societies Foundation for supporting our work specifically focused on healthcare uh, professionals. And terrific uh, discussion, excellent presentations, wonderful, wonderful questions. Uh, please all stay in touch and, uh, and let's move the, the field forward step by step. The opportunity is definitely here.